The statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In today's special episode, naturopathic Dr. Aaron Stokes sits with Robin O'Brien, former data analyst turned food activist, to discuss the nutritional crisis of the American population. These two experts, who also happen to be moms, share the big picture of what's happening to our food, how things got this way, how it's affecting you, and what you can do to set our food system back on a course to promote the health, nutrition, and safety of your family. It may be a heavy topic, but it's an incredibly easy listen that I really enjoyed. I hope you do too. Hey, Colleen. Hey, Abby. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I say pretty well, but I've actually got this weighty topic on my mind, and it's something, no surprise here, we've touched on before in that supplement show, and that's this nutritional crisis that we're facing. And I think there's, you know, the big obvious problems, issues with famine, food deserts, and certainly poverty. But there's also other aspects to nutritional this nutritional crisis that relates to the U.S. population. And it's things like regardless of income or access to food, we're just not eating nutritionally. So even those that have the access and ability to get healthy whole foods aren't, and they're still having this nutritional crisis as well. They're finding themselves in their own, you know, self-made food desert. Yes, um, you're completely right on on that point. And, um, you know, this kind of brings us right into what we're going to talk about today, um, or rather what a few experts are going to talk about today. Um, you know, people are in various stages of awakening when it comes to the crisis that you're talking about. The idea that, you know, even if we think we're eating healthy, we could really be missing out on some crucial nutrients. And maybe some of the problems that we're facing could be a little bit easier to solve if we just realized what we weren't getting in our diet. Um, so regardless of where somebody falls in this stage of awakening, um, whether we're super aware or just maybe starting to be a little bit interested in the idea that we could take charge of this nutritional crisis that we're facing as a population, no matter what, our health is at stake. And I think that for those that are becoming privy to the situation, um, who either want to know because they're really mad about it and they kind of feel like they've been duped, or have to know because their body is having some kind of reaction, you know, maybe there's a nutrient deficiency that is causing a problem that is making someone say, what is going on? What do I need to do to start to feel better? I think it's still hard to distinguish the messaging that we're hearing, you know, the hype from the truth. Like, what can we believe you know, even just when it comes down to supplements, you know, there's people on both sides of the spectrum, people saying, oh, supplements are completely necessary. And then people who are saying, oh, I don't think they're really worth anything. Mm -hmm. And you know, we've, we've had a lot of talks about this. Um, and that's why we're having this conversation today. We're going to get a little deeper into it. But it's not going to be between you and me. Any guesses who we're going to bring on? Well, I was just thinking because I kind of fall you know, earlier on in the spectrum, I'm very, I'm aware of this, but I'm not quite sure what I can do. I do know somebody who, you know, this issue is very near and dear to her heart. And it's someone we've had on the show before. So I'm thinking we could give Dr. Aaron Stokes a call. Yes. About you? Um, once again, you're, you're right on there. And so we had an idea, um, you know, in planning this podcast that we would talk to Dr. Aaron Stokes. But to take it a step further, we're also going to bring on a um, very important figure um, when it comes to this crisis that we face. Um, and I'm speaking about Robin O'Brien. Oh, yay! 
<laughs> so some of our listeners may have heard of Robin, some may have not, but either way, uh, here's the scoop on Robin. Um, she was a former analyst, so she's got this super analytical mind, and she kind of had her food awakening um, when one of her children developed a food allergy, and she began to ask the question, you know, what is being done to our food? What's going on here? Why are these allergies like just coming out of the blue and so, so prevalent? Like, What is going on? And she just kind of couldn't leave that alone. And fast forward several years, she now leads a nonprofit. Um, she's a bestselling author. She's a public speaker. Uh, she has devoted her life to figuring out what's up with food and what we can do about it. Um, she's got a book out called The Unhealthy Truth, and I love this. She has been quoted to be food's Aaron Brockovich as far as being an activist. So that kind of speaks to who Robin is. And I love that. Yeah, yeah. She is one passionate woman. Um, and so, you know, without further ado, uh, so here, here's the bonus here. You and I, we get to sit back now and listen because we had Dr. Aaron Stokes and Robin O'Brien get together and have a discussion on the nutritional crisis we're facing. So we can just sit with our listeners and enjoy. You ready? I, I'm very excited. I think we're going to learn a lot. All right, here we go. Robin, I'm so happy to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you today about the nutritional crisis in our country and our food system. And I think it's always helpful for our listeners to get some historical perspective how do you think that we got here? You know, I did some work with Jamie Oliver, gosh, probably five years ago, and he said something that has stuck with me ever since. He said, you know, we've inherited a broken food system that took decades to build. So we're not going to be able to fix it in one, two, or three years. You know, we are inheriting a problem that was built over 50, 60, 70 years. And what I often say is, this food system that we've inherited from the 20th century, it doesn't work for 21st century families, period. So now it's up to us to design a better one, a smarter one, and one that works better for families who are confronting a lot of the challenges that I know you see in your work every day, that I see in my work every day, whether we're talking about food allergies or diabetes or obesity or cancer or autism, or food sensitivities, there are so many conditions and chronic diseases that are now impacting our families. And so it has a lot of people asking why, and what's changed, and what can I do to try to take control of what can feel like a very out-of-control situation? So I, I love that quote by Jamie Oliver, and we have inherited this broken food system that's developed over decades. Can you back us up to some of the decisions that were made or some of the key points that happened that led us to where we are today, whether that's focused around convenience or profitability of the food system, just understanding a little background, I think helps us figure out how to go forward. You know, I am extremely lucky that I have a grandmother who is 106 years old, and she is in Louisiana. She is absolutely the definition of a steel magnolia. She raised four boys, and she's incredibly smart. And in my conversations with her when she was a young mother raising these boys, food was so precious. And we had the Victory Gardens during World War II, and every single piece of food that was put on that plate was valued for everything that went into producing it. 
And here, here we are two generations later, and we've completely lost, we've divorced ourselves from the value of the food. And with my grandmother, when we would go to her house when we were little kids, you know, whatever she would put on the table, she said, whatever you put on that plate, you're eating. And if you don't eat it, you're having it for breakfast the next morning. And so as kids, we quickly learned that in her house, you only took what you were going to eat. There was no food waste at all. And yet here we are two generations later and 40% of the food that we produce, not only in the United States, but globally is wasted and thrown away. And so we are completely mismanaging the natural resources that we have. And if you step back from that, you kind of have to say, well, why? And you look at a lot of the policy, a lot of the legislation that has been introduced in the last 50 years, and whether we're talking about food regulation or things like generally recognized as safe, all of a sudden it enabled a processing of our food supply for convenience, for refrigeration. Um, And I think probably originally, a lot of the motives and incentives that were in place were truly good ones, you know, to try to offer more food to more people more of the time. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? However, what we're realizing now is that that came with a downside and came with a risk. And probably the most obvious was um, pumping a bunch of artificial ingredients and food additives into the food system. Now, I had worked prior to having kids as an analyst on Wall Street and was on a team that managed $20 billion in assets. I was the only woman on the team, so the guy said, you're going to cover the food industry. So in the early years of my career, I spent a lot of time studying these business models, and it was crystal clear why they took the real ingredients out and replaced them with these artificial ingredients because it drove profitability and it helped drive margins. At the time, however, I never thought to ask, well, wait a minute, what are all these things doing in combination to my health or the health of a child or the health of somebody with diabetes or cancer or food allergies? And so as I kind of stepped back from that, I thought there have been a lot of changes introduced in the last 20 or 30 years. If you look at when high fructose corn syrup was universally embraced, it was the early 1980s. And on the same day, Coke and Pepsi announced that they were going to switch out sugar and replace it with high fructose corn syrup. That was 100% a profitability and margin-based decision. And from there, we had artificial colors that were introduced. And then in the mid-1990s, probably one of the most seismic changes to happen to agriculture in our country was the introduction of genetically engineered crops. And so then with that, you know, companies that were selling all of these pesticides and herbicides and insecticides could suddenly use these genetically engineered seeds, which had been engineered to withstand higher doses of the herbicides and pesticides and insecticides. And so as a business model for a chemical company, it's brilliant because suddenly these seeds can tolerate higher doses. You can sell more of your chemicals, revenue goes up, shareholders are happy. The flip side of that is what was that doing not only to the health of the consumer that suddenly now is eating these genetically engineered seeds that are now being treated with larger doses of herbicides and insecticides, but also what is it doing to our soil? And so here we are, you know, 20 years into this experiment, realizing that there may very well be these unintended consequences. And so, you know, it's easy, I think, for somebody to say, oh my gosh, this is so big. This is just such a tsunami of bad news. And you can look at it that way. However, I choose to look at it as this is an incredible opportunity to come in 
and make things better. We have a generation of children that has earned this title of Generation Rx because of all of these diagnoses, because of all these chronic conditions, because of these chronic illnesses. And what we are seeing in the marketplace, which I simply love, are these companies that are responding to consumer demand. And so, you know, people will say, well, what about policy and what about legislation? Absolutely. I would love to see policy enacted that is very proactive in protecting the health of children. However, in the United States, policy usually follows the money. So to demonstrate that in the marketplace is where anyone, anywhere can take action now. And the more that we can show the success in the marketplace with these products that are free from GMOs or free from glyphosate or free from artificial colors or free from artificial growth hormones, the more we show growth and success in the marketplace, the more policy will follow the money. So that's where I think it gets really exciting because that means all of us can participate. Everyone can play a role in helping to recreate and build a better food system. Absolutely agree. And we are all consumers. And so we can all make a change in how we purchase and what we bring into our homes. And Robin, I, first of all, I'd like to meet your grandmother. She sounds like an amazing lady. I know. And I love that, that quote of food is precious. And I think that it's been treated in a way that's not precious as much as being a commodity, which with your business background and being able to see this was done in a way that was all about convenience and profitability and really valuing that over health and wellness. But they do think that the, the tide is turning. It's, it feels like things are changing. And so for people out there that are trying to figure out, you know, navigating this, this world of food and even as we look into the world of supplements, how do you see a way that people can decide who they can trust? Well, you know, I think if you think back to the 80s and this kind of calories in, calories out model and how as a generation, you know, everything was was diet, diet, diet. You know, it was snack wells and diet sodas. And suddenly it was just magic. You know, you could you could eat all of these foods, but they didn't have the calories. And instead they were packed with all of these artificial ingredients, all of these synthetic chemicals. And so, you know, I, I completely participated in that. You know, I used to give up Diet Coke for Lent every year because I was so completely addicted to it. It was the thing that I loved the most. And I thought this is a real sacrifice you know, and I'd give it up every year for Lent, which is crazy, but that's how addicted I was. And I think, um, I was so far removed from the nutrient conversation around food. It was simply about the calories and calorie in calorie out. That's not all equal when you're talking about the calories that you might get from an avocado or broccoli versus the calories you're going to get from an avocado or a soda or, uh, or from a Twinkie or a soda, you know? And so it's like, on the one side, you have this avocado and broccoli that is just so nutrient dense and full of vitamins and minerals. And on the other side, you've got these calories that are just completely empty, whether it's a can of soda or a Twinkie. And so, you know, as I was starting to kind of think through that, I thought, wow, there's this whole education that we really didn't get as consumers. And in this kind of obsession around everything diet, and this obsession around calorie in, calorie out, and this sort of the, this, all of the conversations around weight loss, what we lost sight of was the conversation around nutrient density. 
And I think what's so much more important to me as a mom is to teach the kids the nutrient value of food rather than the caloric value of food. But growing up, all we were taught was the caloric value of food. And so that's the opportunity I think that we see now in front of us. And you see parents really stepping up and responding to that. Thankfully, we have the internet, we have these apps, we have all these websites and resources that can provide a bunch of information, show us fun ways to cook. You know, we've got all these amazing friends on Instagram that are constantly inspiring us, you know, with these incredible posts that they share all the time. But again, it kind of gets back to that tsunami feeling of, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming. And these people look like they've got it all together. And I can't even like step foot in that room, you know? And one of the things that I emphasize a lot, especially as a mother of four, is don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. It's so important to focus on progress, not perfection. And when we were starting out, I mean, it was my entire kitchen was full of artificial ingredients and in, in, in the cupboard and the fridge and absolutely everything. And so as I was as I was trying to figure out where do I start, what do I do, you know, I realized I, I, I couldn't change everything all at once, but I could do one thing. And so I started, you know, month one, it was, I'm going to get these artificial colors out of the kid's diet. And then month two was, okay, I want to get this artificial growth hormone out of the dairy that I'm feeding to my kids. And by taking baby steps like that, it enabled me to get moving and get through that sort of paralysis mode that can hit when you're learning all of this and you think, I don't even know where to start. And I think that's really important to give yourself permission to participate, that this is not about perfection. Yes, I think that when people get into that paralysis mode, it's a result of being overwhelmed. And when we get too much information and too many different things that we feel like we need to do, it's a natural instinct to sort of shut down. And so I think doing one step at a time, and I was thinking about this lack of education and also this lack of connection to our food. And one of the best ways I think that people can connect to their food is to grow food, is to have a garden. And even that I think can be overwhelming to start, but you can start small. You can start with some potted basil and some potted tomatoes and and work your way up from that. But I think that as we look at the current generations, the coming generations, that it really goes full circle back to your grandmother and her wisdom in, in those victory gardens that you talked about is that I do think that when people have that connection, either in their own garden, you see more schools having gardens and school field trips out to farms. It's just connecting that. There's nothing like seeing a child pull a carrot out of the ground for the first time ever and have that aha moment. Oh, I know. And I mean, again, but I, you know, somebody who I had been so type A and I thought, you know, I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. And I don't want to fail at doing this when I thought about growing things. And I had all these justifications, all these weird excuses about why I wasn't going to grow food. And then one of the kids came home one day from elementary school with the lima bean in the cup. And I thought, it really can be that simple. Don't make it more complicated than it has to be. Start simple. And so, like you said, you can start with one pot. And it can be done anywhere. My best friend lives in New York City, and she has the most amazing garden on the tiniest little patch of an apartment ledge. And again, you know, it's not making the the perfect, the enemy of the good. It's doing what you can, where you are with what you have. And that the joy that comes from learning um, as you learn to grow your own food and build a garden is 
is incredible. I mean, what we have learned in the last decade when it comes to growing our own food is so incredibly rewarding. And to be able to take my nieces and nephews out into that garden and they get so excited to pick a cucumber or pick some zucchini and then, you know, bring it in and cook it or cut it up. And there's such complete satisfaction in that. And again, you know, to give yourself permission to start small, I think is incredibly important. You know, when we're as parents, when we're teaching our kids how to read or potty train or ride a bike, it does not happen all in one swoop. You know, it takes time and we we give ourselves permission to allow for the process to occur. And I think the same thing has to happen here. So in an ideal world, it would be great if we could grow more food and have home gardens and We certainly can do that to the best of each of our abilities and starting simple and small, like you said, and growing from there. And then we have farmers markets and there's still going to be those moments where people are out in the grocery store and they're looking at labels and they're looking at their food and they're looking at their supplements and they're they're just trying to figure out what are the best choices. Are there certain guidelines that you have for people when they're looking at labels? Well, you know, again, with this background of mine from Wall Street, this whole term of due diligence, of really doing your research, um, I've carried that over into parenting, much to my children's dismay, but (laughs) it has been so incredibly helpful. And I think, you know, one of the most important things that I like to know when it comes to the companies whose products I'm buying are, you know, are they run by parents? And I think about late July, uh, and Nicole, the founding mom of that, of that, you know, snack company, her son has peanut allergy. And if you want to buy a product from a company and you're at all worried about peanut allergy to have a mom at the helm who is right there on the front line with you, navigating all of this like she literally is building out those products in a way that's safe for her own family with food allergies and so you know that they're going to be safe for yours and then i think about for example what you guys have done with mega food with the with the glyphosate free certification i mean nobody has done that yet and it is honestly quite shocking to me that mega food is the only company that has been bold enough to really to make that move in a really transparent way. But in both cases, when you pick up either a late July product or a mega food product, it is right in front of your face. And so when I work with some of these food companies, that's the first thing I say is the faster you can embrace transparency, the better. Because then not only are you being completely upfront with your consumer, but the consumer is also able to give you completely direct and honest feedback because she knows exactly what she's buying and she can navigate around or into that. And if you are kind of opaque or cloaked in any way when it comes to trying to like slip something in, inevitably what ends up happening is the consumer's not going to buy the product because she cannot be sure that it's safe for her child with food allergies or her mother with diabetes or her dad with cancer. And so the faster a company can embrace transparency, the better. And I think a great example of a company that has done this in a, in a really brave way, in my opinion, is Kashi. They basically came forward and said, there are not enough organic almonds in the United States to meet our demand as a company, you know, much less all the other companies that would want organic almonds, but the supply didn't exist. And so they said, you know, we want it to exist. And so they've enlisted the help of the consumer 
by asking consumers to purchase certified transitional products, which then help them convert farmers from growing conventional almonds to organic almonds. And I love that model because they don't own it. They want other companies to participate and they are enlisting the consumer as a foot soldier in this movement to drive the food system forward. And most of the consumers are saying, tell me what I can do. What can I do? You know, we always hear, oh, vote with your wallet, vote with your shopping cart. And we do that. But I think for most consumers, they know that there's more that they can do. They're not necessarily going to reach out to their local congressman. They're not necessarily going to sign a petition or send something into to D.C. But by actively participating with some of these companies that are really moving the food system forward, I think it creates a really powerful force in the marketplace. And so, you know, for me, I am always looking for complete transparency, straightforwardness when it comes to the labeling and the seals. And so, you know, with late July, she has just gone overboard um, by identifying the allergens that her products are free from. You guys have gone absolutely to the very front, you know, by certifying your products as being glyphosate free. And I think that kind of transparency is so completely embraced by the consumers, especially mothers with young children, because you don't really, there's this sort of fear and who do we trust and can I believe these companies um, as these acquisitions continue to happen those questions continue to mount. What I will say, you know, having been at this for as long as I have been, is that in the last couple of years, there has been enormous turnover inside of a lot of these companies. We've seen over 20 CEOs step down. And with that is an opportunity for, for the, next, the next executive leadership team to step into that leadership role. And usually that means that these newer leaders have younger children. So they are navigating all of this right alongside us. And what I found in my work is that 12 years ago, when I was still having to sort of educate people about what was happening to the health of our children, how they've earned the title of Generation Rx because of all these chronic illnesses, there was still that sort of skepticism. Really? You know, are kids really, is it really this bad? Today, now 12 years later, hands down, you don't have to, that is, that, that is not debated. People see it firsthand, you walk into any preschool, there is just a wall of EpiPens that are hanging there. We have so many conversations about type 1 diabetes and all of the issues and challenges that are confronting parents as they try to figure out how to afford and pay for all these medications like epinephrine and insulin. And that, that, that whole conversation has changed. So now we've got people inside most of these companies who really get it. I think the challenge, the bigger challenge now is a lot of the board's um, are still boards that were assembled in the 20th century. And while we've seen this incredible turnover in the leadership roles, I think the next thing we really need to see is turnover at the board level. And once we see that, then again, these CEOs and executives are in a place to make these really important decisions to bring a greater transparency to the food system with the backing of the board, because then the board, again, like the rest of us have children who are struggling with all these problems, just like ours. I think this combination of transparency and, and, you know, transparency has become such a common buzzword that I really like to see, well, what's the action behind the transparency? And, And you alluded to several examples there. And then this activism that I believe people are really 
craving. They want to get involved. It's just providing it a clear avenue for people to do that. And your example of what Kashi did is is a great one because it does go that step beyond, you know, you you vote with your dollar and we do. And then I do believe that there's there is a desire to get involved in a deeper level and it's giving people the opportunity to do that. So Robin, you've you've alluded to a few examples of some companies that are doing it right. And we've we've touched on a big a big issue here around our food system. And I thought that we could end talking about some of the good news. But do you see beyond some of these specific companies, and I know that these are the pioneers and the people at the forefront, system-wide, are you seeing changes or things happening in the food system that indicate that we are turning the course, that we are turning the tide? You know, there. I think there are so many great examples of changes that are happening and they're accelerating. The rate of change is accelerating. So I think, you know, one of the things that I studied when I was an analyst was the rate of change. It's not just that these changes are happening. It's that they're happening at an accelerating rate. And I often will say courage is contagious. And when one person steps forward and moves to make a change or call out some injustice, it inspires other people to do the same. And so we're seeing that. And I think, you know, the Grocery Manufacturers Association really failed its members. It did not host these conversations for its members. The concern around things like GMOs, the concern around things like glyphosate, the real concern around artificial colors that parents were having, they really ignored and turned a deaf ear to those conversations. And it cost them tremendously because now you see just this exodus of companies who are leaving the Grocery Manufacturers Association. And that is pretty revolutionary. You know, when we first started talking about that four years ago, I remember writing an article and people thought, they were like, can't believe you said that. But, you know, again, it was, if an organization is going to serve its members, then it has to actually have these really hard conversations. And they weren't willing to do that. And so we've seen, you know, all kinds of companies, Nestle, Campbell's, all these different companies leave the Grocery Manufacturers Association. So right now, a lot of them are just sort of floating, you know, trying to figure out where they need to be, uh, what organization they should be participating in. I've actually had a lot of these companies come to me and say, would you start one? I'm like, that's that's not the best use of my time. But I, I truly hope that an organization forms kind of like a food production association that is really focused on the supply chain that helps these companies um, begin to navigate that transition from conventional to organic in order to meet this growing consumer demand. Um, And then I think too, again, you cannot make the perfect the enemy of the good. And so a lot of these companies are um, expanding their offerings in the organic space. They're partnering with the retailers. I think that is really an important piece of this. Kroger, for example, um, back in 2012, that when they launched Simple Truth and their Simple Truth organic line, you know, at that point, the entire food industry was locked and we were in this giant argument and debate around GMOs. And it was sort of this he said, she said thing. And Kroger just listened to the consumer who was saying, I want free from food. I don't want this stuff in my food. And they didn't want to debate it. They just wanted food that was free from GMOs and artificial colors and artificial ingredients like high fructose corn syrup. And so Kroger launched a private label brand. And I think that did more to change the industry than almost anything, because all of a sudden these companies who had been 
on the sidelines arguing about it realized that Kroger was moving past them and Kroger moved past them fast. That simple truth and simple truth organic line went from zero to a billion in revenue in a two-year period. And now when you listen to their earnings call, the CEO will say, this is like the highlight. This is the bright spot in our earnings. And it it totally kickstarted the rest of the food industry to say, oh gosh, we got to get in on this game. And so now all of a sudden, you know, you see these bigger multinationals participating. There's a lot of skepticism in the consumer base around that. You know, they're saying these are the same companies that were trying to tell us that we didn't deserve to have GMOs labeled and that we didn't deserve to know what's in our food and why should we trust them now? And that's where I think, you know, the follow through is going to be absolutely critical. There are a lot of acquisitions that are happening. These big companies are trying to buy in and, you know, kind of um, adopt and inherit the DNA of some of these organic companies. In some cases, I think it really works. In other cases, the culture of the big company making the acquisition isn't um, malleable or fluid enough to really begin to integrate and embrace that organic DNA. So it's not one size fits all. And I think, you know, we still have a good few years in front of us of kind of the shakedown. And I think it's also going to be interesting to see how these different companies navigate it. I think Wall Street um, really is still operating as if it's in 1985 when it comes to how they are questioning and grading the food industry. I think they're measuring these companies on metrics that really um, need to be readjusted. You know, instead of the margin and profitability and everything else that was from the 20th century, we need to also be asking questions about what percentage of your farmland is organic? What programs do you have in place to convert that farmland to organic? You know, what are you doing with your farmers? What incentive are you putting in place? How are you financing this? And those are really important conversations. If the food industry is going to be able to capture and ride the growth that the consumer is asking for when it comes to expanding organic. And so, you know, I look at some of these companies and when I meet with some of these CEOs, some of the best CEOs are the ones that are right there on social media, engaging with the consumer and really, really listening because she's telling you exactly what she needs and exactly what she wants. If you really get into those conversations and listen, you hear the heartache of what it means to have a child with food allergies. You hear the heartache of what it means to have a child with type 1 diabetes. And the closer you are to that conversation, the better due diligence you're doing, the better information you have when it comes to, you know, launching these newer products, redeveloping older ones. Um, and I think those, those CEOs really are, are quite remarkable because they are, they're absolutely just on the front line in social media with the consumers having these really vibrant conversations and they're not afraid to. And so I think that's also been a huge shift is that there was a lot of fear around these conversations 10 years ago and fear is not a catalyzing emotion for a long period of time. It may, it may do some change, create change in the short term. But I think what we're seeing now is a shift. And as corny as it sounds, love is such an incredible force when it comes to creating change. It's a very expansive energy. It's very embracing. And so while parents may feel afraid or angry or sad or mad if a child is diagnosed with something, they feel all of those negative things because they love so much. And once a parent hits that, emotion of just that that love that is a rocket fuel it drives remarkable change and we just continue to see that happen over and over and over again in the food industry and so um, that's where I get really excited because that's the fuel that's driving this change it is 
a limitless source when it comes to parents and their children. And unfortunately, with the rates of diagnoses that we're seeing in kids, they only continue to go up, which means that more and more parents are coming into this, they're, they're called into this action. And the movement and this kind of army of foot soldiers that we see now as parents is growing into this remarkable force. Love is a galvanizing force and can affect so much change. And I truly believe that, as you're saying, fear can bring, can motivate us sort of in the short run. But I think that love has a sustainable energy that can really be the impetus for all great change. So what I'm hearing, Robin, is also just that need for us to listen to each other and also engage not just listen and engage with one another and bring everyone along and also provide tools at all levels of the supply chains that we can do this as a society, all of us, you know, from farmer to consumer and everywhere in between. So I want to thank you for this conversation. And I think it's part one of many more to come. I appreciate your time and all of your insights and expertise. So thank you for being here with me today, Robin. Well, I feel the same about you guys. And Megafood truly has been a leader in a lot of these really important conversations. And I think it's easy for somebody to say, oh, that's so great they did that. But it takes a lot of courage, too. And so I really do want to thank your team for being out in front and hosting these important conversations, for putting it on the products, for putting it on the labels, so that there is complete transparency for consumers. Because truly, I think that is the only way forward. Well, thank you. I think courage is contagious. So I hope that through this podcast and other avenues, we'll just be able to continue to spread it. Wow. You know, listening to that, I was really taken aback by how lucky we are to have someone like Robin in our corner. She's doing this great advocacy for our food systems, but up at the high level with these you know, big corporations that I often think of as untouchable. But if they just were to listen or become stewards for our food system, for our earth, for our health, they would have the ability to make huge change. You know, I've always thought about what can I do as a consumer or as the um, customer of these big brands, but she's taken it a step further and, you know, gone straight to them kind of on a peer level, you know? Yeah. And, you know, all of us can't do it all ourselves, right? And we have to accept that. So I'm right with you. Like as a consumer, I feel you know frustrated sometimes like, oh, what can I do? But then kind of on this new level, it's not just, you know, finding brands we trust, for example, but it's finding these public figures and influencers that we trust, right? So that when we have brands that are not doing it right, we've got somebody that's, that's, you know, on the front lines like Robin is. So it's really an interesting way to get our information, isn't it? You know, find the influencer that we can trust to glean from them what it is that we, you know, who should we should support, maybe who we should stay away from, kind of the choices that we try to make. Um, it That really kind of brought it all clear for me that we, we find those that are doing it right and we kind of follow their lead. Follow their lead and, and lift them up, I think, and support them and, and find the ways that we can attach ourselves to their mission and try to transform this food system that so desperately needs it. The other thing that was so interesting is kind of the origin story of our current food system and how it came to be. And of course, I'm sure neither of us are surprised to learn that profitability had a lot to do with it. But again, being so grateful that I'm 
currently living in a time where now we're looking beyond that profitability and taking the humans into consideration in health and wellness. Yeah. And that rate of change that she spoke about, it's, it is very uplifting. I feel like I was really needing that note of positivity because you know, we've been in this downward spiral for so long and the big companies are starting to have some huge conversations because of what people want. Um, and yeah, I feel like there's really hope in, in improving our supply chain as a result of this consumer demand. That Kroger example was really eye-opening. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I agree with you. I think Robin and Aaron really offered a message of inspiration and kind of like a battle cry, but a lot of hope as well. Yeah. Yeah. So good stuff. Um, and I'm sure this isn't the last conversation that we'll have with Robin. Um, in fact, I can guarantee it because she's going to be on the show again um, in a few months. So listeners, if you liked what you heard today, um, make sure you tune in again. All right. Well, I am looking forward to hearing from Robin again. Me too. Thanks, Abby. Thanks, Colleen. Today's episode is brought to you by Megafood, making vitamin and mineral supplements in New Hampshire since 1973. As a certified B Corp, Megafood's vision is to nourish a world in nutritional crisis. Starting with products that use real food from family-owned farms, all Megafood's products are certified free of gluten, dairy, soy, and 125 different herbicides and pesticides, including glyphosate residue. Learn more about Megafood's products, passions, and purpose at megafood.com. Leave a review on iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear from you. The statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.